so excited to have my next guest on the show, Tom Smith and Dan Murphy, both retired, decorated NYPD officers that served, both of them served in a multitude of roles in their distinguished careers. They are also the creators of the brand new hit podcast, Gold Shield, which is a show spotlighting the great work and stories of America's law enforcement detectives. In this episode, we talk a lot of shop and some smack. Tom Smith and Dan Murphy, next on the CJ Evolution Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Patrick here. Thank you for tuning in to the CJ Evolution Podcast. Special thanks to you, the listener and supporter. Thank you so much for listening over the years. If you love the show, please give us that five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We sure would appreciate it. Thanks to you, the criminal justice professional, whatever you were doing, wherever you were at, thank you. Remember this, you are honored, cherished, and above all, you are loved. Stay safe and keep up the fantastic work. What makes Shatterproof a very unique program is it's one of the only programs in the country that first responders can go to that is 100% all first responders. Everybody's in pretty bad shape when they get here. And then 30 days later, when you can see the transformation and the difference in people when they've had 30 days uh, of counseling, working with therapists, working with a psychiatrist, getting the neuro treatment, doing the breath therapy that's done here. The transformation that happens with the clients is really humbling to be able to work around and see because people are getting better here. And it just shows that there's a need for the first responder community to deal with behavioral health issues and take them seriously and offer treatment to people that may need help out there. They should be afforded the ability to come get help when they need help. It has gotten better, but we still have a long way to go. Hello everybody, welcome back. Very excited to have my next two gentlemen on the show, decorated officers, retired officers from NYPD, Dan Murphy and Tom Smith, and they are the hosts and creators of the very popular Gold Shields podcast, and they're here today. What's up, brothers? Happy to be here. Happy to be here. How you doing? You know, I'm I'm uh, I'm okay. You know, I'm just a squirrel trying to find a nut in this world, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having us, buddy. You're welcome. Oh my God. So I know you guys both spent a lot of time with NYPD, both decorated officers. Can you tell us a little bit about the experience in working in the largest municipality? Is it in the world or is it just in the United States? I know it's NYPD is huge, the biggest in the country, right? Is it the world? It's the world. It is the world. Yeah. uh, There was a time I remember when I was in the academy in 1990, there was a time that a sergeant came in and made sure you learned and knew how to use your radio because he said the sixth largest army in the world is at the end of that radio if you need help. Don't mess it uh, up. Mm-hmm. And that's what it was like. It was uh, and still is the brotherhood. It's, uh, you know, with all its faults, with all with all its things going on, it was the best place in the world to work. Mm-hmm. It's all I ever wanted to do. Uh, my dad was an NYPD detective for 26 years, you know, through the really tough times of the fifties and sixties and into the seventies, you know, so I grew up in it and that's all I ever wanted to do. Uh, that was it. You know, I used to steal his shield off his, off his nightstand (laughs) and put it on my belt and run around the house playing cop and robbers. Uh, I was going to say run out and stop cars. Yeah. I was going to (laughs) say run out and stop cars and shit. It could have kids the wall. (laughs) <laughs> you know so that's all i have wanted to do and when i got the opportunity and jumped on it it was the it was the best thing in the world yeah i mean and, and dan same thing i had a blast i, I gotta tell you i um my uncle was on a d- department for 39 years and he was a sergeant and he worked in headquarters he knew a lot of people and i really originally didn't think i was ever going to do this by the time i hit about 18 i thought for some reason i was going to go into radio um and that was a short-lived dream but uh, i took the police test ended up coming on i gotta tell you I just took to it like a fish to water. I, I fell into the camaraderie. I fell into the excitement. And back in 1984, when I came on, just like when Tom came on, it was out of control. New York yeah. City was out of control. So despite the fact that I had grown up in the city, 
and I had been a victim of robberies and stuff, all kinds of stuff like that before I'd seen things. I was a fish out of water when it came to coming into going into the inner inner cities, the really high crime areas and working, but it was exciting. Yeah. It was so much fun. I learned so much. Yeah. There's a lot of times when years get taken off your life in a moment's notice by something, but wow. I mean, you see everything and you meet everybody in the NYPD. If you do it right and you work hard, you, you can have a day when you come in in the morning and you're sent uh, into the city for a presidential detail, let's say, and you could be five feet away from the president of the United States. And then six hours later on your drive back up to the precinct or out to Bronx or wherever you are, you, you, you pull over your car because somebody's overdosing. Yeah. Some low life crackhead, low life heroin addict is overdosing in the street. And now it's your, that's your job. So you meet world leaders down to the lowest of the low and everything in between. So if you want the human experience, New York's a place to get it. Yeah. But a lot's changed. And I want to hear some of your stories, both of you. But a lot's changed in NYPD, like every other agency in the country, right? I mean, you know, law enforcement is getting hit every angle. We got, you know, social media fucking blasting law enforcement. We got politicians now. I mean, mm -hmm. it's definitely, you know, a different time now. Would you both agree than you know, when we got into it, I, you did it a lot longer than both of you did it a lot longer than I did. I did it for 23 years. Of course, I was yeah, in a the, smaller agency, but go ahead, Tom. Yeah, the the political scheme, you know, landscape changed and, and people's focus. And I think a, a large part with the NYPD, and Dan and I have done actually shows about this. One mm -hmm. of the biggest problems I think these days is leadership. Yeah. And, and what's not out there, you know, Dan and I both worked in, in the NYPD in New York City when we were averaging 3000 homicides a year, which on a scale is insane, you know, but we had to deal with it. And for the beginning part of my career and Dan's, you know, beginning part, but a couple of years more than me, that's how you started out in the job, you know, going to work with 3000 homicides, you know, lingering. And then administrations change. And in 1994, Rudy Giuliani became mayor of New York. Broken windows there, you know, all that stuff. And, and Bill Bratton and uh, Chief Adamone, John Timoney, Jack Maples all took over the NYPD and changed policing on a grand scale to mm -hmm. let the, the police officers do their job and clean the city up. And as Patty, me and you were talking earlier, one of the biggest things that took place during that time and why it became so effective was one of the first things that the NYPD uh, hierarchy and the administration of New York City did was get the DA's office involved Yeah, mm -hmm. and had them in an agreement with us like, hey, I'm going to send my guys out there to do A, B and C. You damn well better keep these guys in jail, you know, and charge them the correct way. That's the only way we're going to clean the streets up. And they mm -hmm. agreed to it. And look what happened. And yeah. now you have the polar opposite. Well, New York's the greatest city out there. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, it's it's the financial hub, you know, mm -hmm. of, of the world. And it just is depressing. I don't even live in New York, obviously, but it's mm -hmm. it's depressing to see the city, this wonderful city out there with so many brave men and women serving. And people are fucking leaving New York City in droves. Yeah. Nobody wants to stay there. I, I think about it from a cop's perspective. When I went on the department in 1984, my starting pay was 21.9. Now I was just turned 21 years old. To me, that was pretty good. I was like, that's okay. I'll take that. You can make some overtime and all that stuff. Now it's 42. So 39 plus years later, it's only gone up $21,000. It's only gone up. Why did I think that that's, NYPD that's was one of the pay. highest paid? Uh, no, Holy no, shit. nope, not at all. As a matter of fact, it's, uh, one of the lower paid in the tri-state area. And a lot of cops leave for the Port Authority, police, Suffolk County, et cetera, Rockland County, because they get paid better and treated better. Now you won't get the experience you're going to get in New York. And I got to tell you, I had a lot of fun, had a lot of great experiences, a lot of great people I met. I wouldn't trade it for the world, but if you're a young person right now trying to pay your way through this life, you can't. You can't live it. in New York City. You it's can't. too fucking expensive. No way. There's no way you can live in the city. And if you do, you're living in an apartment with six other renters, or you're living in a, your parents' basement because you're 21. Other than that, on your own with a family, starting out as a cop, couldn't do it. 
And even then, even back in the day, I always worked overtime, always worked second jobs. Once mm-hmm. I got married, had a kid or two, you have to do that. Yeah, you have to. And I accepted that. But what I what I didn't accept was, you know, zero, 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 two for contracts like we got. That kind of stuff was a real slap in our face. And that was, Tom can attest to this too. When, when uh, Giuliani came in as mayor, he really, really allowed us to do our job. Him and Bill Bratton and the rest of them, they said, do your job. We're going to back you. We're going to do it smart collectively as a department. And we did. And look what happened. When you bring the team together, the DA's office, when you bring in um, all the other city agencies and they all sit down and say, we're on the same page, we're going to do A, B, and C because Man- New York City, specifically Manhattan, because that's everything comes from there, is not going to fail. It can't. Mm-hmm. It can't fail. We can't allow it to happen on our watch. It's not going to happen. It's been failing. And for years as a kid, all I know was graffiti-filled subway cars and garbage in the streets and the culture was terrible and people, you know, muggings all over the place. And it was just, it was out of control. So to take that back required a massive change in policing. Like Tom said, we talked about broken windows, right? Mm-hmm. Little things mean big things. You know how many people jumping turnstiles to get on the subway had active warrants for serious crimes, mm-hmm. had guns on them. I mean, crazy amounts of real felons and, and people were always shocked by that. And I say, let me see, this guy is a career criminal and you're surprised he's jumping the turnstile. <laughs> is there ever been a law written he's bothered about or cared about <laughs> that's what kills me about the gun debate like oh if you write more laws i think tom yeah, can attest to this too I, I never once pulled a gun out of somebody's waistband where they said you know officer i actually uh, have yeah. a permit and i'm legal it's you know that's what criminals do they do crime so um yeah no it, it leadership tom talked about leadership when we had that leadership in place and it trickled down through the department that we were going to be aggressive that we were going to take the city back, we did. Tom, do you think, but well, both of you, I mean, do you think, because law enforcement, you both know, it's kind of a pendulum, you know, it kind of goes this way, that way. Do you think it's going to get better in the future for, you, for law you enforcement? Would, you would hope so. You would hope just the, the kind of test of time will change the tide, you know, and you get, people are going to just put up with it for so long, you know, even politicians, because you're not going to get elected. You know, yeah. crime is a is a number one topic when it comes to elections now. And even those, you know, those maybe defund the police people, which are backing off now, you know, from what it used to be. I think it's going to change. I don't know when, uh, but I'm hoping it does because people can only take it for so long. Yeah, yeah. And politicians don't give a rats about anything else but their next term. Well, in know, New York so- City, they got rid of the street crimes unit, right? They, yeah. they got Didn't rid they of eliminate the that or reallocate people to different divisions and stuff? Yeah, they got rid of the anti-crime unit, which both Dan and I were in, which was one of the best things I ever did. I was going to say, why wouldn't you want those people you know, out there? Right. And we, you, you see in the crimes that the guys in uniform don't see, you sneaking up on them. You know, the bad guys are looking around for the radio car and uniforms. They're not looking around for the undercover guys. So it gave you an opportunity to be there when they would do something. And we stopped so many in-progress things and crimes that were going to take place before they happened. Mm -hmm. And and stopping that unit hurt dramatically the the crime stats in in New York. Mm -hmm. Uh, They had since put it back in, kind of modified a little bit. I don't even know precisely what it's called now, but they're wearing you know, raid jackets with NYPD on it. You know, it's not a legit plainclothes unit like it used to be. And it's probably Uh, severely limited in what they can do. I would imagine then when you guys were on. Yeah. I mean, you had limits, but you could police. Well, when you when you work in an area, let's say, for example, the 30th precinct, which is what a a square mile, 1.2 square square miles. miles. Yeah. And it's got, what, 140, 150,000 residents, and you've got 50 homicides a year or something like that. And you got another 200 non-fatal shootings. I mean, back in the day, you have to be aggressive as a cop. You cannot allow people to wander the streets with guns in their waistband without being confronted by the police. You have to, when you see that, and if you have a unit in plain clothes whose job it is to look for that stuff, you know, cops get sharp. After a while, you learn what it looks mm-hmm. like when a guy's walking and he's got a gun on him. You learn the way that they duck. They turn their body when they see you. They, they give themselves away. So you get good at that and you seize unlawful weapons. You take them off the street and who knows how many lives you saved that night. And yeah. that's the job. The job at the end of the day is, is about protecting the public. That's Coming the home. Top, right. 
Get them home. <laughs> right. Yeah. And coming home at the end of the day. For yeah, a cop. exactly. Well, your job is to protect the public. And if you're out there ignoring obvious criminal violations because somebody's telling you it's not the flavor of the day, well, you're going to watch your crime stats go through the roof. You know, once they know you're not stopping and throwing them on the wall, the guns come back out again. Well, and that's I, the way it is. And, you know, you look at, thank God there's still, you know, men and women who want to get into it. But, you know, as a, as a young person now, I mean, you, you got to look at what's going on and say, what well, the fuck would I be a cop? You know, and it's sad to say, but thankfully mm-hmm. people are still getting into it. But, you, you know, know you see, but not like not like it used to be. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, Danny can attest to this because I'm sure the numbers were the same. I took the, the NYPD test in 1987. Danny was already on for <clears throat> three years uh, when I took the test. 80,000 people took that test mm-hmm. in New York City. 80,000. There's a couple of thousand people taking the test today. Wow. And that's yeah. not, so they take the test. That's not even, well, you know, they still got to go through Academy, FB, yep. FTO. They could get weeded out. So a thousand doesn't mean a thousand for the listener. That could mean fucking 50. And back, background screening, which they were so tough during the background screening process. Tom and I have talked about this. If you had so much as, you know, a moving violation, you had to go to the court, get a statement saying you had paid it. They broke your shoes about it. It was relentless. Yeah. It was like you committed, you know, Harry Carey. What are we talking about here? <laughs> now it's like felony. Well, what kind of felony? Yeah, they smoked dope last night. Well, yeah, you know, they're you know, here. They're might be legal soon, so let's let it go. <laughs> Honestly, what, what you're seeing slide by across the lowering of standards, as we know, across the country is going to be disastrous. Well, of course. Why, why the fuck are you going to hire some? I, I get it. It's a manpower mm-hmm. issue. But I yeah. would rather go short on the street mm-hmm. than to work with somebody who probably shouldn't be there. Right. The liability then. I mean, you saw these 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 guys that what, what a couple what a last year or a couple months ago that, that killed that other black guy. And they had questionable backgrounds. Mm-hmm. They were always in trouble. One of them, you know, shouldn't have been hired and all this other shit. Yeah. yeah well, none right. of them, the guy in, uh, it was Memphis. Yeah. Memphis. They didn't, go through, they didn't go through any background investigation. They were strictly just hired. Okay. So let's, okay, here's a gun and a badge. Council. Go out there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. By the city council to go. Yeah, you, to work you, in that Scorpion union or unit or yeah. whatever the hell it was. Yeah. You know, now you're hired. No backgrounds. No, nothing zero uh and that's what you're gonna get that's gonna be the results if you keep doing that mm-hmm. you know uh the the level that you need to be a police officer is up there you know it's a high standard you know whether you like the police or not mm-hmm. you know the level that you have to be to do this job is really high uh because of what's involved in it you have the ability to take someone's life if need be and you can have your life taken in a blink. So the mental part of it, Absolutely. you know, on top of the physical part, all has to be equal. Yeah, you got you to have your act together in so many ways to be able to be effective as a cop. And if not, it'll crush you. The stresses and pressures will crush you. Yeah. Because all day long, you go into people's worst day. Yeah. All day. And some of those people are very violent. And in New York City, we had more than our share of people on the streets who were on parole, just got out of the can, had spent half their life in prison. These are people that will not go calmly with you, will not go quickly, will not comply. That's it. Yeah. So you're engaged in a lot of confrontations. You have to learn how to deal with people who are under influence of you know drugs all the time, drugs and alcohol constantly. On a night shift, you're dealing with probably half the people you deal with are yeah. intox. And you got to deal with people with mental health issues, people yeah. who are suicidal, people who hate cops because they put me away once or whatever. And this is your whole night, all day. That's what you do. Yeah. So you got to be physically fit. Then when I first came on, you're working rotating shifts. You're working around the clock, this crazy schedule that you never knew where you were. So you're mm-hmm. exhausted physically. Your sleep clock is messed up. You're dealing with endless calls. Uh, you're trying to keep yourself in shape, trying to eat well in areas where you just can't get good food. Um, paid garbage. It's stressful. It gets to you. You see a lot of crazy stuff happening and and it's not easy to keep yourself on track if you go into that in a bad place you're not going to come out better that's for sure well and i've always said and you both know i mean law enforcement's going to fuck you up i mean it's going to affect Mm -hmm. you in in some way that's why you said dan i mean it's so important that you take care of yourself you know Mm -hmm. physically mentally but i want to hear some of the stories tom i want to i want to hear a story from you and dan after after you're done i want to hear if you're willing to share Mm -hmm. like the most 
harrowing shit that you got into as a cop? Oh boy. <laughs> if you could just talk about it a little bit. Uh, well, there, there's, I, I was in a, there, there's actually two I could, I could share with you real quick. Uh, one was a very large shooting I was in back in 1994, uh, with three armed individuals, uh, that just robbed a supermarket, uh, came out, uh, carjacked a livery cab and we ran into the middle of it. Uh, they started shooting at us. Uh, we stopped the car. We actually had a shooting with three guys in the back of a car. After we blew out the back window of the car, we had a shooting with three guys in the rear of a car with us at the trunk of the car. Wow. Back and forth, about 40 rounds being fired. And one of our cops was, was shot during that. Uh, <clears throat> he was okay. He was shot in the leg. Uh, we ended up getting all three of them. We shot two of them. And collectively, I think they got 175 years in jail wow. uh, for that. They were actually wanted for 12 supermarket robberies throughout the city when we ran up on this one. Uh, so that was, you know, no one prepares you for that. You can go to the range all you want. Oh, yeah. Shoot a target all day quick. long. And none of that matters. Uh, the whole count your bullet, count your rounds thing. No, it doesn't work. <laughs> One, uh, especially in at the time. <laughs> I mean, this what's worse. At the time, we had 38s. Yeah. When I yeah. had my shooting, we had 38s, not you even You got nines. the speed loaders and shit. So had, in there. Yeah, try to, try to do that without your handshake and <laughs> yeah. watching 15 things going on. Uh, <clears throat> and then just another one real quick. I don't want to take up Dan's time. Uh, mm -hmm. We actually just did a, a show the other day on a, uh, a case I did while I was in Afghanistan. And Afghanistan is not the Bronx. So we realized that on one particular day when me and my partner got surrounded by about six or seven guys with AK-47s while we were driving back from Bagram Air Base. And uh, they stopped us. And my partner and I had an agreement that we were not gonna get grabbed. No matter what happened, no matter what was going on, we were not going with anybody, whether that resulted in a large firefight or mm -hmm. what have you. And not to be a tough guy, and I don't mean it that way, but we were just not no. going to get grabbed. Yeah. And Bad things happen if you get grabbed. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, we were we were weaponed up like crazy. We had M4s. We had heavy vests. We had the whole nine yards. And one of the main guys who stopped the car, who was yelling at Jimmy, actually reached into the car and grabbed the steering wheel. So I had my M4 with me. I clicked the safety off and told Jimmy to move his head. And Jimmy, without blinking, leaned back in the seat. And as soon as the guy saw him do that, he let go of the wheel. I told Jimmy to floor it. He ran over one guy that was in the front of the car. Too bad. Yeah. Uh, you know, jumped in the back seat and leaned out the back window just in case they started shooting at us, which they didn't. Uh, but that was a big realization that we were in a war zone and not Holy, yeah. in the city anymore. And thankfully, we made it out and, and everything was okay. Wow. Jesus. Dano, what's up, brother? I got nothing. I wrote a ticket one day to a guy and he was pissed. <laughs> <laughs> How do you follow that up? I mean, come on. I don't know. All right, let, let me, uh, I'll give you a couple of quick snippets. Um, when I worked in a task force with the DEA, I developed a case, uh, my team did too, but I, I, I was the principal through the whole case. I went over to uh, Hong Kong and did an undercover operation with the chief money launderer for a Thailand-based operation that sent pure heroin all over the world. And I had to meet with this woman in a, you know, I was supposed to meet her in a hotel, me and my DEA agent partner, we ended up, she changed the plans. We went to an apartment in a housing project in North Hong Kong, close to the China border. And the Hong Kong police were supposed to be watching us. They weren't there. Two of us unarmed. I'm wearing a Nagger recorder, which is the size of an iPad, practically in a, in a belly band in the small of my back. And just like Tom did in the elevator, I said, Keith, I got a kid at home, another one on the way. Yeah. We're getting out of here. I don't care yeah. what it takes. F the case. <laughs> if we have to leave because it's not going well, we're out of here. But we got managed to do it well. Uh, I was sweating bullets waiting for somebody to pull a gun and kill me because I'm thinking, you got to know I'm a cop. I look like a cop everywhere except in <laughs> Hong Kong, apparently. A couple of quick things from patrol. I had a night one night, me and my partner were driving in the 3-4 precinct, which at the time was completely out of control. 1986. I'll never forget it. We're driving down a street about one o'clock in the morning. All of a sudden, we hear rooftop gunfire going from one 
six-story tenement building, crossed a small street into the windows of another one. And we're like, holy crap, we put it over the air, shots fired. Then we see Molotov cocktails, one at a time, flying off the rooftop into that building. One of them goes into a window, starts a fire. The other one hits the uh, side of the building, starts a fire in the garbage cans down below. Bullets are still coming. Molotov cocktails were like, uh, you know, do we go after the shooter or uh, we got to evacuate the building? There's all kinds of people sleeping. We go running up into the building to evacuate them. Bullets are still flying through the window. We're trying to get people out of there. Wake up, wake up, fire, fire. We got people out of there. The fire department comes there, pissed at where we parked, of course. You know, sorry. <laughs> get out of the way. We yeah, we, we go up on a roof of the other building. We didn't get the perp because we made decisions to try to get people out of the building. And there's like 35 spent shells and there's five other bottles of quart-sized beer with gasoline and, and rags on top. Whoever it was had a problem with somebody in that specific apartment. And apparently that's the way you resolve it in some, some places of the world, you know? Yeah. Had another situation, uh, same partner, same area, about uh, a couple of months later. We're driving down uh, St. Nicholas Avenue, I think it was, and we turn a corner on 173 Street, and a car pulls up in front of us, stops, and like 50 feet away from us, three guys get out and shoot a guy in a corner and kill him right in front of us. We're in uniform. This is how they didn't care back then. Yeah. We jump out of the car, jump on the radio, shots fired. The guy takes off on foot. He starts pegging shots at us. We chase him. He runs into a building. Right before he runs into the building, I grab my partner, Johnny. I'm like, just stop. I'm waiting to hear steps. I want to hear going up the yeah. foot, going up. The, so I know he's moving. I hear nothing. Now I think he's waiting right behind a wall. Let's do this smart. So we go in tactically as, as best we can. And uh, we hear the sirens come and everything. He had bolted out the back door. There was a back into an alley and, and he was gone. Well, for that one moment, a piece of my training was like, hold on. It's one thing to run after people. It's another yeah. thing to run to your death. Yeah. So just give it a second. I really wanted to hear his feet going up the steps because I knew then he was contained to the building or the rooftops and somebody, ESU can come. It doesn't have to be a gunfight if it doesn't have to be. But that, that was one of those nights you go home, you're like, wow. Wow. Watch the guy get killed, got shot at, ran after him. But the training does kick in. I, I was uh, stop for a second. When you can give yourself a second and stop and assess where you are and what you're doing. Absolutely. And, um, we were lucky. He was a crappy shot at us. Uh, some maybe it was just get away fire, but he we didn't get hit. And I was like, because uh, my partner slipped. <laughs> he, I see the shots go and he falls down. I thought he I thought he got hit. You know, yeah. for a second I'm like Johnny. And he's like, I'm good. And, you know, these things happen, you know, like within eight seconds, everything I just said to you happened. Yeah. That's how quick these things are. So, and, and, in, we, and in 1986, in the 3-4, that was a Wednesday night. <laughs> how many, when you guys were on the street, mm -hmm. I mean, how many calls did NYPD have in a fucking day? I mean, they have thousands and thousands oh. and thousands and thousands. Oh. Endless. I, God, when I was on patrol in the 3 in, in, you know, 90 to 90, you know, 96 when I left, you could have a, you could have one night in your sector with what, Dan, 60, 60 calls. Easy. In yeah. your sector, 60, 70 calls a night. And then the, most of those are high priority sector. or. Right. But your sector. No, it's everything. It's everything, everything, everything mashed in. Yeah. 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 It's like 70 calls a night, every night. And, and you get and to the point not, where, yeah, not yeah. like you know, my doors open, no, you know, heavy burglary, robbery, shots fired, person shot, domestic, person, yeah, that was yeah, the domestics, night. yeah. Drug sales on a corner was one that would like put four of them together, we'll drive past the four corners, and we'll just say, as long as nobody's dead there, we keep going because you can't deal with a drug dealer, you're too busy answering radio runs. One more other quick story, gonna add it to you. Same precinct, <laughs> 34th precinct, same year, 1986. Driving up a block, I was working with a guy named John Navarre for the night. We heard shots fired in a building in the, in the basement level area of these tenement buildings. And we were right near it. So we're like, all right, stop the car. Something, either something's going to materialize on the street or not. You don't go crazy when you hear shots up there because rookies do that. Shots fired. Well, there's always somebody shooting a gun off, whether it be on the roof, yeah. in a building. If you don't know where it is, don't put people in jeopardy. So just wait. So we sat there for a second. We hear screaming up from the basement comes these two guys running for their lives. So we go over, we grab them. What's going on? And they're pointing, oh, shot. we heard shots. These two guys came down from um, New Haven, Connecticut to buy weight level Coke from the Dominicans in this building. They went down there. 
into this basement apartment and the Dominicans looked at them, saw the money and said, no, it's robbery time. It's not sale time. It's robbery time because you're stupid enough to follow us into this basement. Mm -hmm. Well, these guys pulled out their guns, too, and a little gunfight ensued in the basement, a little apartment. Nobody hit anybody. I don't know how they did it. So these guys come, these guys come <laughs> boogieing out, screaming for their lives. We grab them. We go back down the stairs with them. Now, I like to say that they wanted to help law enforcement, so they voluntarily showed us where the apartment was. The fact of the matter is <laughs> they were desperate to get out of there, but I said, I got to know where this place is. So we, we kind of walk with them. It's a nice way of saying it. Point to the door, point to the door. We push the door open. It was open. We see a guy with an AK-47, another guy with an MK-9 um, in his hand. And they're, they're looking at us and they got all kinds of money and drugs on the floor and they panic. So one of them hits the light bulb with the gun. Now the fight's on. One's trying to get out the window. So it's John and I fighting and there's four guys, six guns, all kinds of coke, all kinds of money, all kinds of story. It took hours to unravel it later on, but that's just, that was a Tuesday night. Jesus I mean, it was Christ. like, you know, welcome to the three, four precinct in the eighties. That's what it was. <laughs> and do you, I mean, obviously crime is going now today. Crime is through the roof in NYC going back, mm -hmm. going and back yep, to what it was with, with less cops mm -hmm. trying to do the same job with less cops, more responsibility. More restrictions you know, on the more restrictions ever. on what you can and can't do. Mm -hmm. It's like we were yeah. talking before you came on, Dan, with, you know, Tom and I, it's like, fuck, I couldn't do that job. I couldn't do the job anymore. Mm -hmm. You got you no know, bail. You got yeah, no DA, bail. Yeah, no bail. You got the DA of Manhattan who dropped 52% of all felony cases down in misdemeanors or got rid of them. That's 50, what it cracks me up. You know, 100%. I'm not with this Trump thing, you know, I mean, okay. Mm -hmm. And he's like, he made some comment about, uh, the welfare of citizens. Well, why the fuck aren't you listening to the citizens of New York city mm -hmm. and prosecuting these cases? He's got the, what the lowest success rate or something like that. Yeah. And you know, it, it's never going it, to, if you keep that up, you keep that trend up. Crime is never, ever going to go down because it's a revolving door. You're mm -hmm. not stopping anything. All you're doing is putting a very small bandaid on a gunshot wound that is never going to be sustainable for people to be safe in the city. It's never going to happen. No matter what the cops do, no matter how many cops you put on the street, if you lock people up, which the cops do, and then they're out before they're done in central booking or done with the DA's office writing it up, they're mm -hmm. already out back at home. Crime's not going to stop. It's not going to go down. Yeah, and that's what we were talking about. People fleeing New York City and drove. Same with happening in California. They're all coming to Arizona. They're like, screw mm -hmm. this shit. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're not going to live here. I mean, it's like lawless. Right. I you, was know, you, can't, you can't blame them. You can't blame people for leaving an area that they don't have confidence in city government to do the right thing by them and protect them. And, you know, the number one goal of government is to protect the citizenry. Yeah. And the city of New York is showing its disdain for the citizenry right now, uh, which is really scary really scary. And I'm not trying to put down to disparage any of the great people on the job yeah, in the NYPD, because there will always be great people in policing. It's the nature of the job. It attracts people who want to do service and, and help others. But the city doesn't back you at all. Now, one of the things I find interesting about what's happening around the country is we're starting to see happen everywhere what we were used to in the NYPD for a long time, which is that not being backed. DAs wanting to lock you up, dropping charges on people, revolving door justice. We had all that for years. We had heavy, heavy scrutiny. Everybody watched everything you did and had an, a, a critique of it. So agencies that were used to being uh, beloved by their citizenry, and a lot of people loved us in the NYPD, but you, you know, they weren't open about it until after 9-11. Yeah. But, but for the most part, we were used to being looked at uh, with slanted eyes. We used to being looked at by people who hated us or didn't like what we stood for. Uh, but they're feeling that now around the rest of the country, now around the rest of the country. And I, and I hear sometimes, well, you know, the police are corrupt and the police are look, this isn't, we're not, we don't live in the fucking days of Serpico anymore. Right. All right. Yeah. Is there police corruption out there? You sure. Just like there's, but the vast, vast, vast majority of mm -hmm. men and women who serve are just trying to fucking do a job. Yeah. A very difficult job. Mm -hmm. Right. But I talked to some and, clown the other day and he was telling me all oh, cops are corrupt. Really? All cops, the million cops in this country, all of them are corrupt. Mm. Really? 
Right. Ask him how he knows, right? Yeah, well, he heard it from a friend. He saw it on TikTok. So it's it got to be true. Right. <laughs> right. And, and that's and that's the bad part about, you know, the, that's the horrible part of, of law enforcement is and, and the media's slant on law enforcement. You know, all the bad stuff comes out. It's in, it's in the first A block of, of every news channel if something bad goes on with a cop. You know, whereas that one story gets taken over in the media and there's 10,000 stories of good stuff that absolutely happened in the same hour, in the same day, just in a different, you know, part absolutely. Of the how many how many contacts you guys know? How many contacts do cops all around the country make a day? Hundreds and thousands and mm -hmm. thousands and hundreds of thousands. How many of those end up in a use of force? Right. Very, very, very yeah. small percentage. Yep. But you're right, Tom. And they take that and they fuck. Oh, it's got to be everywhere. Cops are just out there killing people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's. And I feel it's, bad for these yeah. young. We were talking about this, Dan. Mm -hmm. Um, when you sauntered in here 30 minutes late, we were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I was on the phone with the White House. He was asking me about <laughs> protocols in Ireland. Uh, nope. <laughs> I was trying to help him out, you know protocols in ireland <laughs> and apparently we're dropping sensitive top secret shit on the street now so uh, anyway <laughs> oh that's it's my itinerary <laughs> must be the direction of the ice cream shop anyway <laughs> but yeah it's it's crazy man so this day and age it, it, you know these young kids getting into it we were talking about this time i mean it's mm -hmm. it's crazy man i mean as but they don't know any better but mm -hmm. it's the sad thing we were talking about is and it's happened all around the country i mean i you like you you have tons of cop friends i have a lot of cop friends that are saying okay you have a new officer getting trained by a two-year fto mm -hmm. right. yeah right and, and we were talking about that earlier and dan you can certainly 100 percent agree with with what i'm going to say you know when, when i got on the job and I, by the time I got on the job, like Danny was mentioning before the rotating shifts, it, it went to steady tours. I think my class was one of the first ones that switched to it. And you had the majority of the senior officers would do day tours, you know, seven till seven in the morning till three, three thirty in the afternoon. And mostly all of those guys had 10, 12, 15 years on the job in uniform in that command. And that's who you learned from. So if you were lucky enough to be with one of those guys for an eight hour tour, you learned more mm -hmm. about the job, that precinct had to do the job in an eight hour tour that people in other places would never get. Mm -hmm. And now you have the kid who's out of the academy getting taught by a kid with two years on the job. And what is that person? What has that cop done in two years? Probably not a lot that he's passing on to the new kid. So it's a vicious cycle of not having experienced officers out there. Yeah. And I don't help. blame the agencies because the agencies are no. in a trunk. What are they, or a crunch? What, what are they going to do? Right. No, but that's just, a big part of the problem with policing today. Yeah. It's just an unfortunate situation. It really is. And I think, you know, as, as all of us spent a good portion of our professional and adult lives in this profession, we want to see what's best for it. Absolutely. We want to see uh, capable, competent, confident, well-paid, well-trained officers doing the job to protect the public. That's what we want to see. Uh, I, I like Tom, I, I did my training in a different area of the city in Brooklyn North and my training officers were, were all, I think the young, 17 years, 18 years was the least any of them had in the job. They were all real, you know, tried and true vets with the ribbons and the medals going over their shoulder. And one of the most important things they taught me is, you know what, every individual incident you deal with is different. Every mm -hmm. person you deal with is different. Do not treat everybody the same. Don't treat everybody like garbage. Make a friend. Always make a friend when you can. Because mm -hmm. there's good people in the worst neighborhoods just trying to make it. Oh, yeah. And it's about had, connections. They're going to feed yep. you information. That's right. And you want to let them know that you're there for them. Absolutely. And when I did that, I had my most success. Uh, it's a people job, first and foremost. And you got the people who are there trying to make a decent living and raise their kids who can't help that they're in a circumstance that they're in, let's say, or that, you know, things beyond their control have put them living in an area where there's a lot of drugs or whatever. Well, you got to do something for them. You and have it, to let them know you're there for them. And there's a misconception out there. You both know that like the people in the, in the bad areas, mm -hmm. you know, don't want the cops there. No, fuck no. They're, they want the mm. cops there. Right. Right. Yep. That's a, that's a media, that's a media driven 
just bullet point that is just not true. Mm-hmm. And there's so many, I mean, Dan and I work in, in, in somewhat the worst areas in New York City, in the worst neighborhoods with the highest crime rates. And there were still, even at that point, with the highest crime rates in that precinct, more good people than bad. Oh, absolutely. Even back then. And it's still that way. Uh, it's still that way today. Yeah, I got friends that work in Chicago and, and they, you know, they go through, you know, Southside, notorious Southside. Mm-hmm. And there's residents going, where you been? You guys aren't, you're not coming around as much. Mm-hmm. They want the, now, I'm not saying everybody in a, sh- you know, in a crappy neighborhood, but a lot of people do and they're good people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, you can make believers out of people by doing something decent for somebody. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the, I, Tom worked for and with a great guy who I've only spoken to, but never really met much, Leo Langaro, who wrote a book on the 30th precinct that I worked in. And then years later, a few years later, Tom worked in when it went through a really tough period of time with, with a scandal. Leo Langaro was a sergeant. He wrote a book called 3-0. And the 3-0 book he talks a lot about is his commitment to the people of that precinct, the relationships he built with the community and how effective that was in helping everything that was going on in that area at the time. It's really a kind of a textbook that should be written, should be read by cops who want to go into policing and understanding this is how you treat the community. You're not out there to be the cop and kick butt. You're out there to serve. Absolutely. You're out there to develop relationships, understand their concerns, understand how they can help you and vice versa. And when you do that, the payoff is exponential. I remember when I was a young cop, my lieutenant and my sergeant, he talked to our squad and he says, I want you out of the fucking car, walking around, Mm -hmm. talking to people, talking Mm -hmm. to business owners, talking to people in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Because like you said, Dan, I mean, the relationships, Mm -hmm. just talking to people, not driving by and waving at them in a car. I mean, there's a time and a place to be in a car. We all know, but get outside. Mm-hmm. Talk to people. Act, you know, be approachable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> One of the things I used to like to do is go out and do that with the drug dealers. Yeah. They'd be all on the corner at 11 o'clock at night. Hey, I'd what's get going out. on, man? I'd park the car. I'd just get out and say, hey, how's it going? And, you know, don't you have to get up for school tomorrow morning? And aren't you, you thinking about any career opportunity? They did look at you and they go, oh, man. <laughs> like, and then when I got that, when I got that reaction from them, like Danny just described, then in front of all your friends, you took a five dollar bill out of your pocket, you put it in his pocket, and you slapped them on the back, and you say thank you, and you walk Thanks. away. Thank- <laughs> well, or just lean over to him, like that guy over there. Thank you. Right. So talk to talk to the audience about the Gold Shield podcast. What was the inspiration behind this? Oh, go ahead, Tom. <laughs> well, we both pointed you know at each other. It, uh, it's blowing up. It's getting real popular. It, it's going well. Uh, and you know what? It was just Dan and I in, in December. Dan and I have been doing a lot together with some other business dealings that, we're, that we have. And we thought about, all right, let's let's think of something to get it out. You know, how what's the next step we can do? And in, I think in December, in a just normal phone conversation, it just went, let's do a podcast. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. And, you know, coming up with, you know, the idea we found, we got settled on what we wanted to do pretty quick. We were pretty happy with that, with, with establishing a good name. Uh, thankfully my daughter's a graphic designer and helped out with, you know, free labor, free labor, buddy. That's right. right. You know, they, like, we can't complain with that. She gets Get handed a lot. Of, she gets handed a lot of stuff and, and comes through for sure. Uh, you know, and then, then we settled down and we had a lot of discussions about, all right, what, what do we want to do? You know, what do we want to focus on? And it's, it's been going great. And then, you know, get jump in here with, with really what the show's about and, and our focus with it. Yeah. You know, we, we talked and we looked at the landscape of shows that are out there. And one of the things we came upon is, you know, we could do the two retired cops talking about topic events and that's fine. That's a good thing. Cause it's interesting, but my wife happens to love true crime. There's a big taste for true crime. And we happen to know a lot of people who worked on amazing cases. And there's many, many more we haven't even heard of or met yet that we want to meet. And so we decided in the current era that we're in, cops are getting beaten up left and right. All the media, all they talk about is this guy did this, this one did that. They don't hear about the work that goes in behind Mm -hmm. cases 
Uh, even, for example, when there's a, an arrest and you see the perp walk and you see the two detectives or something walking up to the car, it's like, okay, that's a successful conclusion. What did it take to get there? Uh, what did they have to sacrifice? man hours. And, yeah. What they have to sacrifice personally? What creativity, ingenuity, dedication, and commitment went into it that the public has no idea? Well, maybe they need to hear it from the mouths of the Absolutely. people who made these cases. Absolutely. And we have a chance to do that. We have a platform and we do that. We offer people an opportunity to come on. Tell us about your career. Tell us about whatever. Tell us about a case that's compelling to you, one that sticks with you. Everybody's got that. They got that one or two or three, whatever. It's like this one I just want to talk about because this is what happened. All these hurdles I had to overcome, what it was like to deal with a family that's broken. If it was a homicide case uh, or a rape case, whatever it is, you own that case when you're an investigator or detective from the scene. Absolutely. Conviction. It's yours all the way. And we, you're dealing with survivors and family members. You're dealing with the DA's office, your own bureaucracy. You're dealing with the criminals themselves. You're dealing with roadblocks legally, uh, massive amounts of paper, crazy hours, cold coffee, all of it. What goes yeah. into it? Missing your kids this, missing your kids that. So there's a lot of sacrifice and dedication that goes on. We decided to do a show to honor that. And it's also evolved a bit into... Uh, what I call the altruistic side of it, which is not just to showcase the great work, but to talk about organizations that help, like your organization, Shatterproof. If you're helping cops currently on the job or retired and their families get through the difficulties that are, in, that are attached to this profession, uh, physical, psychological, financial, whatever it is, we want to let people know about these great organizations, these great meaning people, and we think that's part of our giving back. You know, Absolutely. I mean, we were both blessed to make it through our careers, survive. We're on this side now. If you can use something at your disposal for good, for those around you, do it. And that's yeah. what we're trying to do. I love the show, brother. You both are doing an excellent job. It made me think about, you know, you, you mentioned like the different cases and homicides. I remember going through a homicide school, and this was years ago with Ron Gaberth. Is that his Vernon, name? Vernon Gaberth. Vernon Gaberth. Yeah. Holy yeah. shit. He, well, he's got the practical homicide book. Oh, he wrote the book. Literally he wrote the book. His and son, remember, we, we worked with his son, the JTT. Oh my God. I remember yeah. him came to, he came to Colorado, huge, like two week, you know, homicide thing that he did. And he had like, he did like three, 4,000 homicides. It was well, insane. He, over, over his career. Yeah. Over his, his career. And he was in the Bronx, right? Yeah, Bronx, Bronx, Bronx homicides. Yeah. It's believable. Holy yeah. crap. Oh, That's yeah. believable. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've read the book. It, it's, there, there isn't anybody in, in, a, in the world that knows more about the investigation of death than that guy. Yeah. Mm. He's not a doctor, but man, when it comes to the investigation of suspicious death or homicide. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. All right. Yeah. I got one last thing for you. Who's better, LAPD or NYC? NYPD. 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 <laughs> Well, it's so funny. I was telling Tom, I was out in LA, you know, last year and they're like, oh yeah, NYPD, we're the best. Like, yeah, I don't think so. I think NYPD is probably. Is there, is there a rivalry between NY? Cause what NYPD is the biggest, I think it's LAPD and next, right? They're like kind of some East coast shit. I, I yeah. think maybe, but you know, they're so far away and honestly, Tom and I would never disparage any no, department or any people that. anywhere, but I will say that, uh, we, we handle probably arguably more stuff. And in certain areas, we have an expertise they might not quite have only because of the uniqueness to New York Absolutely. and vice versa. They have their unique stuff. They have their celebrity stuff and they're better at stalking and harassment and all that. They deal with stuff that we don't deal with and vice versa. But at the end of the day, a dedicated cop is a dedicated cop. Absolutely. Man, woman, white, black, crippled, crazy, doesn't matter. If you do this job and you do it the right way for the right reasons, we salute you. That's how well, we feel. God bless both of you. Thanks so much for coming on. If people want to check out each of you, where, they, where can they find you? Things are going to be linked up in the show notes. Where can they yeah, find you your podcast? Go, uh, we, have a, we have a website, thegoldshieldshow.com. Uh, our bios are on there. Uh, you can access the show from there on Spotify and iHeart. We're also on Apple and uh, Audible and Amazon Music. Uh, we record our shows on Thursdays and get them out on Fridays uh, for everyone to hear. And uh, the You can get all the information on the show right there. Final we, thoughts, Dan, for the people out there. And then we'll go to uh, Tom. Uh, if people out there 
are looking to get into law enforcement, what advice would you give them? I would say it is absolutely a noble profession. Prepare yourself mentally, psychologically, physically. Take care of yourself. Get in good shape. Go into it for the right reasons. It's a service job. Don't kid yourself about cops and robbers. Even in the busiest of places, that happens, but it's more common you're just dealing with people with their problems. So understand what you're getting into it for and keep your hand out of any till anywhere. It's not your money. They used to tell us it's monopoly money. Yeah. Don't think you're going to take a dime that's not yours. Bad move. You will end up in prison. So stay, stay clean, stay out of trouble, do it for the right reasons, and focus on people, and you'll be great. Well said, Dan. What about you, Tom? Yeah, I would say the same thing. And, and like I've said to a number of people, you have to love this job. You can't like it. You can't mm -hmm. just like it. You have to love it because it becomes part of your life. It becomes part of your DNA and everything you're dealing with on the street, you, you just, you take and it, it, it uh, engulfs you and you have to be ready for that. Like Dan said, mentally, physically, uh, emotionally, you have to be ready for this job. It's hard. It's not yeah, easy. Absolutely. It's not TV. It's not a movie. Uh, it's real life stuff that you have to be ready for. And it's a life changing experience. Uh, so just have everything squared away in your head and, and be ready for a, an adventure. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. Tom Smith, Dan Murphy. Thank you so much, my friends for coming on the show. It's an honor to have you on. Thank you for your service brothers. God bless you. Uh, and everything we talked about folks is going to be in the show notes. Thank you both. Take care. Such a great show with these two amazing NYPD police veterans. If you love the show, head over to our YouTube page, CJ Evolution Podcast. Links are in the show notes. Take care, everybody.